This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil examine how the rules of war and just war doctrine apply to the conflict between Israel and Hamas, discuss what Jim Jordan's nomination to be House Speaker and the recent elections in Poland teach us about the state of democracy, and then close with a look at artificial intelligence and whether Bill should be excited or worried that a machine might soon be making his Chipotle burrito. Now, let's go to the lab. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor of political science at Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to get to that burrito topic. Anything burrito related is always good, especially if you're factoring in some chorizo into it. I feel, you know, that we had that conversation a couple of weeks ago about how often people think about the Roman Empire or whatever. <laughs> For you, it's burritos. Like, I feel like it's there's true. like multiple times a day you think about burritos. <laughs> you know, I had a hectic morning getting everybody off to school and, you know, kind of getting all the logistics before I headed off. And I dropped my daughter off at school and I thought, you know what? I need a breakfast burrito. <laughs> so I went and got a breakfast burrito, See? right? I mean, it's it's a calming thing. Some people do drugs. I like burritos. <laughs> it's a much, well, I was going to say it's a much safer alternative, but even, even uh, the human body also has a limit to how many burritos it can tolerate as well, I think. so. No, I, uh, that's a very, very good point. So well, before we were going on air, we were talking about what we wanted to banter about. And you came up, you had two really interesting things that, that we thought we could sort of have a quick debate about. Yeah, well, we often do our, our little, you know, what's more stupid bit, but we, you and I texted two different stories to each other this week, <laughs> and, and I thought we could have a very quick discussion about which of these is more disturbing. And the first is that George Santos, you know, the, the, the congressman who is, you know, seems to be lying about everything, apparently earlier this week, <laughs> was photographed or filmed coming out of another congressperson's office holding a baby, and nobody knew who the baby was, and he they asked, is the baby yours? And his response was... Not yet. <laughs> Which is, I don't I don't even know where to begin with that. That's that's very disturbing. Yeah, it's uh, disturbing. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that one a little bit? Or do you want me to throw the second one out and then you can tell Let's me? Let's throw the second one out okay. there. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, then we can compare, you know, the second one is one you sent me and I don't know how you came. Or, oh, it was on CNN. <laughs> so this is not just nothing. But apparently there was a, a flight canceled, an EasyJet flight canceled recently because someone defecated on the floor of the bathroom in the in the airport plane. That is also uh, really troubling and, and disturbing. So, you know, when you go to sleep at night, which of those keeps you up more? The fact that a member of Congress says not yet <laughs> when talking about a baby or that the rules of society seem to have, have, you know, unraveled to the point that people are doing unthinkable things on airplanes. The guy pooping on the floor of the plane for me is 100 percent more disturbing for me because the chance of me running into George, uh, George, what's his name? George San Santos. Santos. That's Santos. supposedly like, that's his name. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Very small. And it's, it's much even less likely he'd steal a baby from me. But, you know, the chance of being on an airplane where somebody craps on the floor is very, very high. Um, and apparently, apparently the, they don't know who did it. Somebody did it. And they just went back to their seat, which makes it even worse and more disturbing for me. So for me, there's no no question about it. That happens on a plane. You shut it down. Everybody goes home. How does that is that an accident or is that like somebody like has an accident and then they I sulk off quietly. <laughs> I don't. What I don't well, understand is my like. I can barely stand in one of those bathrooms because uh, they're so yes. tiny. I don't understand how something like this happens. But it's it, it is terrible, and I think it happens more often than we think. And yes, it is. Uh, it's unfortunate. 
Um, but the yeah, just the, the thing not yet is also really straight. He's an odd guy. Yeah. There's no chance he's getting reelected. So he's sort of burning it down as he goes. There was, <laughs> you know, he's he lost it yelling at a reporter the other day. Um, it turns out <laughs> there was a new story that uh, he was stealing his credit card from people like that donated to his campaign. You, know, you have to put your credit card in. And they were I mean, it's just the guy's in so much trouble. He's clearly some you know variety of different crooked uh, and and probably a bad person, too. I mean, I, I don't want to generalize, but I think we're safe doing that about him. I, I think it's pretty safe. Yeah. He's going to prison right at some point. Like this, it sounds like this is the road, so. it's, it, the, the path he's on. Yeah. He also could be a guy that would poop on the floor of an airplane, too, right? I mean, these stories may intersect it's, in some it's way, too. a good too. point. And, and <laughs> to tie into further stories later on, it's only a matter of time till he's nominated as Speaker of the House oh as well. Oh, my goodness. So. I'm, I'm glad we're going to get to talk about that today because that uh, is really just a, it's sort of a stunning historic development yeah. where the Republican Party is and Jim Jordan and all of that. And it's, yeah. a, it's a race to the bottom for sure. Man. All right. Well, now that we've solved that, uh, or no, did you decide which was worse? Did you did you take a for, firm position on this? I well, so I, I think uh, so. I'll go the opposite way of you, yeah. which is that my, my I can actually conceive of ways in which the airplane incident is just a really unfortunate, like a, a something really unfortunate happened to someone. Sure, <laughs> and there's no way to like to to like rationalize. I'm not saying that's actually what happened. I I, I know yeah, enough people no. to know that it's maybe just as, if not more, likely that this was intentional. But there's no way to rationalize saying not. Yet, when someone asks you if that baby is yours, like that, there's just point. no positive spin of that story. There's no alternative explanation that that makes it okay. So I, I'll, I'll go with George Santos saying not yet to a question about who's about whether he the baby is his or not. It, that is that you make a compelling case too. So, all right, before we get to the real topics, why don't you remind everybody how they can stay connected with us? Yeah, so thepoliticslab.com is is the place to go. You can find all of our old episodes there. Uh, and you can also find reading material. So we've got a number of articles this week up about um, a couple about the just war doctrine and, and ethics in in uh, war in Gaza, um, and then a number on on Jim Jordan and on on what happened in Poland this weekend. So um, uh, and and on AI, which we'll talk about at the end. So all of those are available on thepoliticslab.com, as well as links to our social media and email uh, contacts for Bill and I, and all all the stuff that you need to know. That is great. All right. So we are going to start again this week with the conflict in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. It does feel as if the last two days have been particularly consequential. Joe Biden made a historic trip to Israel and pledged continued U.S. support. Uh, his trip game came the day after a horrific attack on a hospital in Gaza that has killed hundreds. Israel has denied the attack and instead that they uh, denied the attack and said they have evidence showing that the attack came from another militant group in Gaza. Hamas is directly blaming Israel, and all of this has occurred while the humanitarian situation in Gaza has deteriorated. Given the more complexity of the situation, we thought it might be useful to offer some thoughts on the rules of war, often referred to as just war theory. Specifically, what is allowed and not allowed in war? What protections are offered to civilians? What potential war crimes might we be looking at in the conflict, and who has per perpetrated them? Uh, this is something that Phil and I have spent a lot of time researching and teaching about over the years. In fact, one of our first graduate seminars together was a just war class at the University of Colorado at Boulder. So, Phil, it might be useful to start with a brief overview of what just war doctrine says about the protection of civilians. And then we can dive into the complex case of the war between Israel and Hamas. 
Yeah, I mean, this is again, you, you've seen it play out this week as, as discussions and debates, you know, have, have sort of raged on both sides, you know, people claiming uh, the, the moral high ground or claiming the other person, you know, the other side is in the wrong. And so um, it's it's there's just so much to this. It's such a complicated situation. And there's so much that just war uh, can can say about it. It'll, it it's, it's fun to, to sort of wrestle with with this, I guess. But um. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, just war doctrine goes back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, basically, yeah. um, and and it come it emerges out of Catholic teachings uh, about you know essentially this dilemma that occurred when when the Roman Empire became uh, officially a Christian empire and like you know countries fight wars and so you know early Christianity was was you know pacifist essentially and so how do you reconcile this you know what it, what it, a country needs to do um, uh, to you know maintain its security with these understandings of you know right and wrong and protecting humanity and human dignity and whatnot and so I mean there, there's there's so much to it but the, the core ideas I mean really at the heart of all just war doctrine is the protection of non-combatants right it is the idea that that people <clears throat> for the most part, don't choose wars. Um, countries choose wars and, and war is, is forced on most of the people who are involved. And so the, you know, one of the, the there's, there's really kind of two, um, there, there's two sort of chunks of just war theory. There, there's one about the justice of war, like, you know, who is, you know, w when is a war just? And so in this case, the question would be, is Israel justified in responding to the attacks by Hamas? Was Hamas justified? Did they have, uh, you know, a moral argument for attacking Israel in the first place? So that's kind of one, you know, area of, of debate. And then, but then the other uh, uh, part of it, and, and really kind of the bigger chunk of just war theory is about what can you do once you are in a war? So, so if Israel is carrying out this war against Hamas in Gaza, what are the limits of, of what they can do? And, and at the heart, really, of both of those is this idea that combat that non-combatants that civilians should be kept out of war and so i mean that's the idea of why war in the first place aggression is wrong is because when you invade another country you're forcing uh, more on civilians who didn't ask for it but it's also the argument about you know why you have to have some level of restraint when you carry out a war the people of israel didn't ask for this conflict the people of of uh, gaza didn't ask for this conflict and so how do you manage to carry out a war in which you are not targeting combatants. And, and I think, you know, th this is one of those where in the abstract, it's a really straightforward principle in the, the actual concrete world that we're living in. It becomes really difficult, particularly in a place like Gaza, where it's you know really densely populated, where the people you're fighting, the groups you're fighting against are using sort of guerrilla warfare and terrorism type tactics. And so, you know, it's it's um, it, there's there's a lot of complexity to it. But I mean, I think that's the heart of it. What, what am I leaving out? Or is, does that make sense? You know, as you it makes perfect to me sense, talk about it? right? And I think I think you raise two important questions of like, when is it just to go to war, which is, again, this really fascinating question of, you know, was Hamas justified in attacking Israel? Is Israel justified in responding to Hamas's attack? But then the the deeper and arguably more complex question is how you fight in that war, right? The the use in mellow term that you hear a lot, which is, you know, having to maintain a distinction between combatants and non-combatants. And, and maybe this is a nice transition into uh, the case study itself. I mean, we can look at Hamas's behavior. If we sort of step away from the question 
of whether Hamas had the right to attack, how they attacked yeah. violated all of the rules of war, right? 100%. I mean, they made no distinctions between combatants and non-combatants. They intentionally targeted the innocent. Um, you know, if Hamas had, Hamas had simply targeted military facilities and, and soldiers, right, we would be having a different conversation. They didn't do so. They targeted civilians. They murdered them. They carried out kidnappings, rapes. All of those things are outlawed. So I think we can start by saying Hamas proved itself to be a completely illegitimate international actor, right, that that has violated all of these these rules of war. But the fact that they violated those rules of war doesn't then allow Israel to do so, right? I mean, that's one of the things about just war. Um, even if you are fighting an unjust enemy, you have to continue to maintain the combatant, non-combatant uh, distinction. And that's what so much of this conversation is, is really occurring about, is Israel's response. What is that looking like? What is that going to look like? And and are they doing enough to maintain a distinction between combatants and non-combatants? And, and I'll say one more thing, and I'll throw it back to you, but I will say Israel is good in theory describing this, right? They talk about their military has a clear line. They do not intentionally target civilians. We're Hamas does not. Uh, it's oftentimes in practice where we see some of the the more complicated angles of the Israeli military response. So it, uh, yeah, no, I think you, I think you, you set us up to kind of think more deeply about these these two two entities and their interactions. Well, and, and to build off of what you just said, I mean, one of this is also one of the core principles of just war theory is that the two ideas, whether you're fighting a, a just or moral war, is separate yeah. from if you're fighting that war morally or justly. So you know. It, yes. Regardless of what you think here, you know, it, there, there is a tendency, and this is part of what has concerned me as I've watched people talk about this over the last week and a half, is that there is this tendency, this human tendency that's been around forever, um, but certainly in this situation as well, to say essentially, you know, that either Palestinians, you know, Hamas is morally, you know, they're, they are, you know, they're defending themselves. So they're fighting a just war. Um, and so, or that Israel was attacked. And so they're fighting a just war war. And what, what people tend to do is jump from that to basically anything goes. So, so Israel's yes. fighting for its life. And so they, you know, they don't have any choice, but to eradicate Hamas and do whatever it takes, or, you know, Israel has, has mistreated the Palestinians so much that, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to hear any discussion of what's, what's, you know, of tactics. And, and I just war theory would say, those are two separate things. You can fight a just war unjustly, right? So you can, yeah. you can be on the side of good and do awful, you know, unethical, you know, uh, unjust things in the name of good. And so it's really important to make sure that you're fighting um, for a sort of righteous cause, but that you're also fighting it righteously or justly, right? And that is the part of the conversation that feels like, you know, it's it, we're, we're talking about these big picture right and wrong, and we're missing the, some of the more nuanced discussion about the specific tactics and, and how that is, is carried out. Well, let's build off that. Let me throw a question at you. So the, the one of the big conversations in these circles has been about the use of sieges, right? And Israel mm -hmm. has acknowledged that they are using a siege of Gaza right now. They're not letting anything in and out, including water, food, gasoline, electricity, all of that, right? Um, so talk about is is the use of a siege against the population, how, how does that fit within this framework of just and unjust wars and, you know, international law? Well, I mean, historically, sieges were, you know, part of warfare, and this is how, yeah. you know, wars were fought. But but modern understandings of just warfare um, point out that there's all sorts of problems with sieges, because at the heart of a siege, what you're doing is targeting a civilian population. So even if you're saying, I'm not going after the people of Gaza, I'm going after Hamas. 
um, to use a siege to do that, you are essentially, it, it is the equivalent of, you know, firing through an innocent person to get to a bad guy, right? This is, I mean, you're, you're, you're targeting the civilian population of Gaza to in some way try to force out or punish Hamas. And, and that's, um, you know, that, that is, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to just, it's not hard to justify. It's unjustifiable by, yeah. by just war theory. Now, you know, Michael Walzer, who wrote the, the sort of, you know, the, the modern, I don't know, Bible of just war theory, um, <laughs> uh, he talks about sieges and he makes this argument and that I think is really interesting that, you know, you can, you can lay siege to a city or like in this case to Gaza, as long as you allow people to leave, right? So it, it, you know, there's there's a solution to this, which is you open the border to Egypt, for instance. I mean, obviously Egypt would have to agree to that, and and you let the people. It, it's still not good. War is hell, right? It is, it is awful, yeah. but people could, could leave and get out of the way they would have access to food and water and wherever else, you know, when they, when they left Gaza and they would be able to get out of the line of fire and, and Israel's response might be that, you know, Hamas would leave with them or you would allow the enemy to leave. But if the goal is to essentially capture uh, you know, or to remove Hamas from Gaza, then you can achieve that, right? Even if it is by forcing them uh, to leave. So I mean, there, there are ways that you can sort of go about this. But yeah, I mean, I, what, what do you think about it? Is, is there a way to humanely do this or to do this in a way that would be ethical? I think there is, but then you're not running a good siege, right? So this is the right. moral dilemma here, right? Because in, in in theory, a siege is not against international law, but depriving a population of food and water is, right? You can't yeah. starve a population. So then the question is, if you're running a siege where you're not allowing food and water in, at some point you're in violation of international law. And that's something that I think Israel is getting close to, right? As water supplies, you know, all of that starts to, you know, if you're depriving people of medical care, like that gets you into a, into a, a problem, right? And, and so, yeah, Walzer talks about you have to have an opening, one side where people can leave. Um, and I think that I think this is going to have to be done by Israel. They're going to have to open some sort of humanitarian corridor where people can leave. Now, it also you you mentioned this, this this would require Egypt to open their doors. And it's not clear whether Egypt will do that. Right. Yeah. Uh, the uh, you know CC, the Egyptian leader, said that that would be forced relocation of populations. They're not going to do that. But at least if you're Israel, you have to create that opportunity to say we will allow people to leave. We will provide resources. And I think part of Biden's visit to, to, to Israel today is to nudge Israel, right, to, to show lots of support for Israel. But behind the scenes to say, Hey, you got to provide humanitarian support. We the US support is there, but that's this is contingent upon humanitarian corridors, food going into Gazans. You don't have to give that food to Hamas, but you do have to provide it for the the broad population, right? So I so I think the the siege is technically okay, uh, but the way that Israel is doing it is getting awfully close to violating these core tenets of just war doctrine. And so over the next few days, I think they are going to have to offer more humanitarian rescue, more humanitarian support, or they will find themselves in violation of of international law. A hundred percent. I mean, this the 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 different the idea. You know, again, like the 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 cutting off of which they've been doing for a long time, right? The cutting off yeah. of of other you know of trade and whatnot. But um, yeah, the cutting off of fuel. I mean, there have been all these reports that that hospitals are running when you've cut off electricity and you've cut off yeah. fuel. Hospitals are running on generators and they are running out of fuel. And so, the I think the argument that just war theory would make is that there is no difference between you know this again. There's a 
debate about who did it, but when a missile hits a hospital and kills 500 people versus you cut off any power and electricity to that hospital and people die, 500 people die because medical care and electricity is not available, you're responsible in both of those instances, right? And so um, one is, one feels more passive, but, but responsibility lies with, you know, the actor that has kind of created this, these circumstances. And, and it is also back to the idea of, um, you know, it doesn't have to be a corridor into Gaza. It could, I mean, into Egypt, it could be into Israel, right? Israel could allow people to leave. um, And they would say that's not feasible or that can't, you know, you can't have, you know, if we're worried about terrorism, but at the heart of all of this is war is not easy, right? And and, and the yeah. expectation is you do difficult and hard things to make sure that you're not indiscriminately killing, uh, you know, innocent people in the process. And, and, and if that's hard, then that raises bigger questions as well about, about to what extent does the population support Hamas and to what extent is your war just in the, be- in the you know, in the, in the first place. So uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is complex, but uh, the, the fact that it's complex Plex does isn't isn't a pass to just take the right. easy easy route out even if that increases the danger of the soldier, right? So I think that's that's one of the clear things about international law and just war theory is that um, it may be more convenient for a soldier not to make that combatant, non-combatant distinction or not to allow a humanitarian corridor or not to provide food or what. But you, even if it, it increases the risk to the soldier, they have to bear that risk to protect the civilian. So, so, I mean, Israel makes a compelling argument to say Hamas engaged in a completely barbaric attack on us uh, and we have to go after the evil doers but you can't label the entire Palestinian population as the evil doers right you have to continue to maintain that distinction to say our war is with Hamas not with the Palestinian people and I think this is the other area where Israel has gotten itself in a little bit of, of trouble here is where you've seen some leaders, you know, the, the the president said something and and the president is more the figurehead, but nevertheless made some comments. And some in the in the military have made a comment that that all of those in Gaza are legitimate targets because they've supported Hamas. Uh, and and that, that's an indelicate thing to say. You can't you can't say it and you can't do that. Um, you continue to have to protect the Palestinian population. And the only legitimate target is Hamas. Right. And anytime you are not making that distinction, you again are once again on the wrong side of of international law. So it's and again, and it doesn't matter how awful Hamas was. Right. And they engaged in complete barbarity. What they did was totally unacceptable. But at no point does that enable you, Israel, to to uh, to try to skirt around the rules. Right. It it makes it extra hard for Israel. Uh, But that's why we say, you know, Israel is a legitimate democracy and Hamas is not right. If you want to be you know, still in those categories. Uh, this is, I mean, this is in line with when you look at wars and these discussions about just wars and just causes and, and whatnot. This is in line with the wars that are the most difficult, right? Whether that's Vietnam, whether it's Afghanistan, Iraq, that, like wars of sort of occupation where you are in some other territory. Um, those are really difficult and, and to the, they're, they're hard to fight. Uh, you know, ethically in the sense of you have to identify who the combatants are and separate them from the non-combatants. And that's really, really difficult in a guerrilla warfare situation. But, you know, Walzer and others argue that if you can't separate the people from the the fighters that you're after, then you need to question, you know, what, what the purpose yeah. is or whether you're fighting a just cause or are you fighting against. So this is where you know, is Israel fighting against Hamas or is Israel fighting against the Palestinian people? And there's been this intention 
position to distinguish the two. But, uh, you know, to say Israel's not fighting the Palestinian people, it's fighting Hamas. But to the extent that Israel can't or is unwilling to distinguish between Hamas and the Palestinian people, it becomes a war against the Palestinian people, right? Which is all sorts of, you know, again, problematic and, and unethical as well. Well, and this has led to a handful of individuals have thrown the term genocide out there, right? That that what Israel is doing is effectively committing a genocide against the Palestinian population. And you've heard this from a number of, there's a Jewish uh, scholar who's made the argument, but you're also hearing it from Palestinian voices, which is enti- entirely surprising. This is a much more controversial uh, allegation, right? Because the mm-hmm. idea would be that, uh, you know, genocide is the intentional targeting uh, for destruction of a, of a population based on race, ethnicity, um, you know, let's see, race, ethnicity, religion, and nationality. Just right. there's four categories. I don't know yeah. if I named them all or not. Um, I think this is a, this is a harder case to make that Israel is intending to destroy the Palestinian population. I think at this point, we would say they are intending to destroy Hamas and to do so in a very violent way, right? But I, I don't completely buy the argument that their intent is to destroy the Palestinian population. What, what do you think about these these suggestions that there we may have drifted into a genocidal argument? I, I think the idea that we may have is, I, I think these are the questions that people should be asking. Yeah. Now, I, the, I, I, the first thing I come back around to is I think about Jim Waller, who, you know, we again, we talk about a lot on here, but his argument always, you know, is that uh, there are lots of terrible things that even if this doesn't rise to the level of genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity are also right. awful and abominable yep. and should be punished and and people should be held accountable for them as well. So in, in some ways, I mean, it, it matters. Uh, in other ways, it doesn't. If people are doing doing terrible things, they should be held accountable regardless of whether it's genocide or whether it's crimes against humanity. And so um, I think, you know, we're, it's an interesting question in in both ways, because uh, on the Hamas side, Hamas, you know, in, in a lot of their founding statements made pretty explicitly sort of genocidal yes. style statements about their goals being to eliminate Israel and to kill Jews and all sorts of stuff like that. So I think you could make an argument. And this is the other part is that, you know, there's no magic number. It's not like you have to kill a certain number of people for it to be genocide. What matters is the intention. And so I think you could make an argument that Hamas was carrying out genocidal acts. I think you could make the argument again, the intention is with the Israel part is, is more complicated, but there's a lot of stuff that falls under the heading of genocide. And, and, um, you know, when you're, when you're, I don't know, you know, mass population movements and, and you're getting into, um, you know, cutting off, uh, uh, you know, energy and, and, and supplies to, to an entire population, it, it starts to raise, you know, those sorts of questions. And there's a parallel right. to Russia in in Ukraine, I think, in which Russia w- isn't saying that they want to eliminate Ukrainians, but their tactics um, are indiscriminate and seem to yeah. be like, you know, blanketly targeting Ukrainian people. And now, of course, they're involved in, you know, uh, removing children from from homes and stuff like that as well. But it, there's this, there's that still that question of. Uh, you know, intention matters, but if the acts sort of are ac- accomplishing or achieving the pro- the the purpose, then at what point does that become sort of enough to claim that this is you know, uh, in, it is intentional, even if it's not explicitly stated sure. as such. 
Well, and there are different categories for that too, right? We could talk about genocide, and then we could also about crimes against humanity, right? And there, right. Are, there, are, there are two different ways of thinking about the problem. I know we didn't move on, but just one other thought that might be useful is one of the other rules of war is this issue of proportionality. Hmm. Um, and I think this is one that, that probably should be discussed more. Um, if you are attacked, you are allowed to respond, to defend yourself, and to punish, right? So it's not mm-hmm. like your response has to be equal to the attack. It can be more, right? You can, you can punish. And I think that's what we're likely to see out of, of, of Israel. But I do wonder about whether Israel's response will be disproportionate, right? Mm. Is if you talk about destroying Gaza, right? And mm-hmm. where you've devastated the land where it's no longer really inhabitable, right? That would be a disproportionate response. And so I think some of what we need to watch for is not just how heavy handed the response is, but is it has it drifted outside of that what we would consider mm. a proportionate response if you're forcing the relocation of mass populations you know and i think the united states fell prey to this after 911 right sure. think about the response in iraq and afghanistan um 9-11 was a horrific crime, but some ways the, the response of the United States was disproportionate. I mean, you think about the number of lives, the instability in the region, all of that, you know, and I, I wonder whether that may also be the case for, for Israel as well, this issue of proportionality. That's a really interesting question. And I've seen, you know, I've read, I read a couple of things today in which one of the debates that came up is when, when we talk about a proportional response, um, some people uh, argue that the, the response has to be proportional to the attack. So in other words, you know, Israel's response has to be proportional to the attack that Hamas carried out against them. Other people argue that proportionality applies to like the acts you're taking have to be proportional to your end goal of winning the war, right? Yes, um, yes. And, and those are two different notions. But in either case, I think you could argue that what Israel is doing is propor- is is potentially disproportionate to whether it's a, a response to what happened in um, in you know in the attack a week and a half ago, or whether it is disproportionate to their goal of eliminating Hamas, right? If you're if you're essentially uprooting the entire population of Gaza and and you know carrying out sort of widespread bombings. Um, have you, have you gone beyond the proportionality of, of what it takes to actually achieve your goals of, of eliminating Hamas? It, it's, 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 I mean, it, again, it's really com- complex. I, I, I know you said we, we definitely sure. need to move on, but I did want to throw one more thing out there. Cause you said, yeah. you know, Biden is trying to, it feels like Biden's visit has sort of backfired in a variety of different ways, which <laughs> yes, I think I was think foreseeable. So, yeah. Um, but one of the questions is, you know, my students have been talking about this as well is like, you know, what's the responsibility of the United States? in this because the US is encouraging Israel to 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 limit themselves and they're trying to make these practical arguments about how you if you carry it out this way world opinion is going to turn against you but the US is not like putting conditions on military aid or any of that stuff. I mean, we're, you know, today Biden went and embraced Netanyahu, right? I mean, it, it doesn't. Yeah. And, and so it, it feels like this isn't anyway, like what does the US hold some responsibility here, some ethical and moral responsibility as well um, to try to do more to limit Israel's, you know, uh, potentially problematic responses? Most certainly, right? I mean, now Israel holds a more immediate responsibility for its actions, but the United States. Joe Biden, by tying himself to Israel, has has brought him into that circle, right? So um, the full embrace of Israel. Now, I will say the Biden administration, not so much Biden specifically, but others have made clear the importance of, of protecting civilians and humanitarian care. And I think behind the scenes, there's a lot of those conversations. And I think that's 
necessary and has to continue both behind the scenes and publicly, right? Um, and if it doesn't, then you say the United States also bears a little bit of responsibility if Israel does drift into a, uh, you know, sort of problematic behavior, right? So no, I, I think Biden has put himself uh, in in a precarious position here because he is he is going to bear a lot of responsibility for what Israel does. And to be honest, I'm a little surprised he has been so forceful in that embrace. Me too. Me too. Well, should we move on? I know there's Let's do we it. could talk for multiple episodes on. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure we will. I'm sure we'll come back to it. Uh, so there were a couple of stories this week that shed a light on the state of democracy around the world um, uh, that we wanted to sort of dig into a little bit. Um, in the United States, Republicans nominated Jim Jordan of Ohio for Speaker of the House. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar, Jim Jordan is among the most extreme members of Congress. Uh, he's a founding member of the House Freedom Caucus and an outspoken election denier. Um, in fact, the House Committee investigating the January 6th attacks established Jordan as central to that day's events. Uh, Liz Cheney, who chaired that, who was one of the chairs of that committee, stated that, quote, Jim Jordan knew more about what Donald Trump had planned for January 6th than any other member of the House of Representatives. He's, he's been a longtime, you know, Trump, uh, outspoken Trump uh, ally. Uh, Jordan failed to get enough votes to earn the speakership yesterday and then again today. But yesterday, at least over 90 percent of the Republican caucus supported him. So even if he fails, his rise further indicates the extent to which Trumpism has consumed the Republican Party. And in fact, Daniel Zablatt, who who was one of the co-authors of How Democracies Die, which we've talked about a lot on here, tweeted out um, in the midst of all of this that, quote, the prospect of Jim Jordan becoming Speaker of the House makes me more worried about American democracy than anything I have seen in over two years. Wow. Uh, from Coming from him, like, you know, a guy who, who is one of the leading experts on democratic break down. That's, that's scary. Uh, and then Ron, Ronald Brownstein in the Atlantic, uh, had an article today that said, quote, each time the party, meaning the Republican party has had an opportunity to distance itself from Trump. It has roared past the exit ramp and reaffirmed its commitment. That's a, such uh, a good way of putting it. Yeah. So, uh, but ac across the Atlantic, there was a more reassuring story this weekend. Poland held an election and the ruling Law and Justice Party, which has overseen nearly a decade of Democratic backsliding, was only able to earn about a third of the votes. Uh, PIS, which is the Polish acronym for the party, has purged and stacked the judiciary, manipulated state media, used state resources to fund its campaigns, has campaigned against abortion and LGBTQ rights. Um, it, it does not have a good record, um, and, but turnout in this weekend's election was really high and barring something unforeseen, a coalition of moderate right and left wing parties will be able to take power. But they'll have to govern in the context of a country that has now a stacked judiciary and media opposed to their rule. It's both encouraging in that it shows, as Anne Applebaum stated in The Atlantic, quote, autocracy is not inevitable. But the road ahead also shows the difficulty in walking back from democratic breakdown. So, Bill, we've got two, you know, the U.S. who seems to continue to go down this path and Poland who's trying to fight their way back. What's your takeaway from all of this? Where do you want to where do you want to go with this conversation? Let's start with with Jim Jordan because this is such a troubling development. I mean, it is, it is, it's it's an indictment of the Republican Party, and and you did a nice job of sort of summarizing why I mean, Jim Jordan should never ever 
be near the levers of, of political power, right? He is a he's a grenade thrower. He's a bomb thrower. You know, he's somebody who openly supported the overturning of the election. Any other moment in history, the Republican Party, any any political party would have let him no, get nowhere near power. But this Republican Party can't. Right. And and so it's it's an indictment of Jim Jordan, who obviously shouldn't be in that role, but also of the Republican Party yeah. who doesn't have the ability to regulate itself. Right. This is, you know, Zablat and Zavlinsky talk about this in their book that the one constraining effort for uh, uh, dynamic for populists is the party itself. They're the one entity that can prevent those individuals from rising to power. And and when he was put out there, the party said, sure, we're on board. And, you know, a few weeks back, we talked about semi-loyal Democrats, right? Small D Democrats. And this is a perfect example of the the Republicans in that party know the threat that Jim Jordan poses. Mm -hmm. They know he's a radical. They know everything about this. They're not being tricked at all. And they still got in line and said, sure, most of them will support. Now, he didn't get the speaker because there were, you know, 20 or so Republicans who were unwilling to do so. And that's a good sign. But the fact that there have been two votes that he's close to that, he's being considered, is just an, an indictment of the Republican Party and the state of, of democracy in the United States because of the Republican Party. So it's it's really bad, or at least that's my take yeah. on it, Phil. What's what's your read? No, I mean, I agree. I mean, what, from just a functioning government standpoint, the fact that the Republicans can't get a leader um, is, is I mean, it just shows sort of the, the internal divisions and a little bit of the mess that the party is right now. But the the fact that they thought that Jim Jordan was the solution is, um, yeah, I mean, it is it should be all sorts of red flags for people. I mean, he you know, you're electing somebody to be third in line to the presidency, someone who is going to lead your caucus in in you know one of the main legislative chambers and you've chosen someone who has denied who who is like not just it's not just that they de- denied the election right i mean they are like it it is that they i mean it's so yeah. we i think we've come to think about the election denialism and sometimes we don't step back and think about just exactly what that means right i mean that is going against the will of the people trying to you know pursue un- i mean he was at the heart of these sort of unconstitutional uh, attempts to to overturn the, the elect the election um yeah i mean it, it is he should be nowhere near power you're exactly right and and i feel like this is also the extent to which like we we have sort of normalized the craziness of of the party in that in that we find comfort in this idea that well he didn't you know even that was even too far for the republican party like 20 people wouldn't wouldn't go along with it but the fact that 90% of the republican party was willing either because they like what he's saying or because they don't have the guts to actually stand up and say like you said do they don't have the guts to be loyal democrats and say that democracy matters more than partisanship um is is uh it, it's it's deeply deeply troubling I, I i i mean there's rumors that he might make another go of it try to have another vote um i can't imagine he lost votes today it seems like he will probably continue to lose votes but um i, I don't really know where the party goes from here i mean it, it is it's it's um yeah, it's, it's a it's, rudderless party, right? I yeah. mean, there's no North Star. 
And I think, again, that's an indictment of the party itself where they haven't groomed anybody for these positions. On the Democratic side, you could think of a number of individuals, if Hakeem Jeffries wasn't there, who could play the role of you know leader of the party. And that's not the case for the Republican Party because it's all over the place. And, and, and one of the defenses you've heard from Republicans is this fear of being primaried, that if you don't you know get in line, that you're afraid that you're going to get primaried somebody who's farther to the right and that this is really an indictment of, of gerrymandered districts. And I get all of that, but there's a huge difference. We do not see this sort of extremism on the Democratic side, uh, mm-hmm. right? I mean, certainly one could argue that there are more liberal and, and moderate Democrats, but not this sort of sort of radicalism where everybody is afraid, right? This is a unique problem to the Republican Party right now. And it's 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 scary. I mean, the fear of getting primary defense isn't like when you really get into it is not much of a defense. I mean, these are people who are supposed to have, you know, convictions and be able to do the hard thing. I mean, we are being elected to leadership positions in national government because we expect them to be able to sort of look at policies and make the difficult decisions. And so, you know, I I go back to like our conversation on just war, like, you know, Michael Walzer talks about how, you know, we, you know, can you expect soldiers to to do the right thing in war. And his whole argument is like, we, we have, you know, we're expecting them to risk their lives. Like we are, you know, they, they they can be expected to make hard decisions. Um, and if soldiers can be expected to make hard decisions in combat, then I don't (laughs) feel sorry for a a Republican who's afraid that he might not, he or she might not get elect reelected. And so what's the danger of getting primaried if you're already pursuing the crazy policies that the primary person would would put, you know, would would pursue if they defeated you? So it it just becomes sort of this meaningless thing. And you can hear the self-justification. I mean, the. I don't know if you saw the the interview with Dan Crenshaw from Texas was going around in which he was asked about like he was going to support Jim Jordan. And I forget who it was. Somebody pushed one of the journalists pushed back and said, like, he was a you know, he's an election denier and and, uh, you know, basically pursued unconstitutional means just to help the president stay in power. And Dan Crenshaw's argument was. Um, if it basically they all are, and if I held that against, you know, my friends in the, in the party, I wouldn't have any friends. And it, it is this oh. acknowledgement that they are all sort of down this, it, and, and it is this kind of cowardice again of this unwillingness to say, you know, if, if, if overturning an election is a problem for you and you look and everybody else in your party has done it, then maybe the problem is with your party. And this <laughs> is where right. you, you, you'd be bold enough to stand up and do the courageous thing and, and call them out, not just go along with it because you're outnumbered. This is right. No, it's well, let's Sorry, transition I, I got a little ranty there. <laughs> no, no, no. That's right. No, I think that's, that's spot on. Right. I mean, they they the Republican these Republicans have agency uh, and they are choosing. This is why they are semi loyal Democrats. Right. They are they are putting their own political interests above the democracy. And so they should be you know, they should be attacked for that. Right. I mean, in terms of the, the we should attack their hypocrisy. But but Poland is you know, we got a couple of minutes left. Poland is a really interesting case where they have managed to. To, to walk back from some of where, you know, the United States is in the midst of it and Poland has been in there for, well, I don't know, eight, eight or so years, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and it is interesting to see their political system, their democracy push back and say we sort of had it with the law and justice party, uh, their anti-democratic practices and judge manipulation and all of that. Um, and then now that party still was the largest vote getter, but they just won't have right. enough to form a government. So you're right. You can come back from those moments, but then you have to operate in the the system that has been 
shifted by those that are you know pursuing anti-democratic practices which makes it hard now it doesn't mean it can't be done but it certainly will be a challenge for this new party or this new coalition i should say as they come into office yeah i mean this is what you know we've talked about uh many times over the years is that the, the when you go through these you know the, a trump era type uh, incident of, of sort of democratic breakdown it's not as simple as just electing somebody who believes in the system after it's over you have to rebuild those norms and that and those institutions and so i mean yes i on one hand i'm you know ann applebaum had this piece in the atlantic that was you know talking about how encouraging this is and, and i think it is that you know her whole, whole argument is the the, the power of anger, right? That when people get fed up um, with, and, and you know, maybe that's what we'll see in the United States with a party that is more cons consumed by staying in power than in actually governing, um, you know, people push back. And, and we've started to see some of that in the United States. But there was also an article in the New York Times um, about how the it's a it's an uphill battle, right? I mean, this is even with a, another party in power that tries to undo stuff when the courts are controlled and the courts can overturn what the what the the new parliament is doing when the media is still you know beating the drum of the the law and justice party it's 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 hard to um, walk back and and it's it's an important first step um, it'll be interesting to to follow and see but you know this is the other danger is that um, you know this new coalition gets elected and if they are unable to achieve anything because of all these roadblocks that have been put up in place by law and justice there's a tendency for people to say to get frustrated with the the inability of the new coalition to yes. get things done and go back to the law and justice but we saw that after the collapse of communism where um, in in a lot of these countries after you know a couple of uh, a few years went by the the communist party started to enjoy a little bit of a resurgence because governing is hard um, and, and in the case of Poland, it's been made even harder by the, the Law and Justice Party who, who you know, worked to make sure that they uh, held on to held on to power. And, and oftentimes these populist demagogue individuals or parties are really good in the opposition because they can offer simple solutions to complex problems. Right. So right. getting them out of office is an important thing. But they are then in some ways in their own element when they're in the opposition because they don't have to govern. There's no responsibility. Right. All they have to do is throw grenades and bombs. And that's what we're going to see. And, and that is hard. It is hard. It's a, it's a hard time for democracy when you've got forces like that out there right now. Well, I mean, that's what we're seeing in the with the Republican Party in, in the U.S. right now, right? I mean, you go back to Jim Jordan uh, to, to go back to that story. I mean, one of the stats that keeps gets get, getting thrown out is that of, uh, after all his years in Congress, he's never once passed a, a piece of legislation. And somebody, I think in the speech today, <laughs> yes. um, they pointed out, one of the Democrats pointed out that none of his legislation has ever even made it to committee. So he has made a career of being, you know, a talking head on Fox News who just critiques and throws bombs. And so... To, to elevate him to the sort of chief lawmaker, it shows the extent to which you have a party that has made its identity about sort of, you know, critiquing the Democrats, but has no policy agenda of its own. Um, and and uh, now they're in power and they don't know what to do. Right. They, they have no, they can't agree on anything. They have no, you know, uh, uh, you have a party full of bomb throwers. And at this point they're throwing bombs at each other, right? Because they can't, they can't, there's nothing else to be done. Which can be entertaining, but it's not good if you actually want to govern. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we should transition to our last topic. And for our last topic, we're going to discuss something that hits very close to my heart, 
burritos um, and news <laughs> that very soon robots may be constructing our burritos. Uh, Chipotle recently announced a new automated digital machine uh, that can build burrito bowls, burritos and salads to customer specifications. Human employees are then expected to incorporate the robot assembled uh, ingredients into burritos. So they can't roll the burritos yet, but they can get it all together. Um Chipotle noted that the goal is not to replace their human workers, but to meet rising demands of serving customers who order online. So these robots are only going to be doing the online stuff. So if you come in to order your burrito, you still have a human take your order and make your burrito. For the time being. Uh, and the shift to AI robots isn't limited to the burritos. There was a fascinating article in the Washington Post a few weeks back detailing how call centers around the world are finding that ChatGPT provides better customer service than human beings. Uh, they told the story of one company where the owner found that instead of the generic unhelpful responses of humans, uh, ChatGPT <laughs> could respond to questions with accurate intricate and lifelike responses the owner fired 27 of his customer service agents and replaced them with lena the ai bot uh the owner said quote it was a no-brainer for me to replace the entire team with a bot which is like a hundred times smarter who is instant and who cost me like a hundredth of what it cost to pay the support team uh economists say the shift could have a profound impact uh, across the world especially in countries like india and the philippines where call centers provide millions of jobs so, Phil, from burritos to call centers, we are starting to see the ways in which AI is going to transform uh, the nature of work in the 21st century. And I will say I have complicated feelings about all of this. Mm -hmm. I like the humans and I want them to have jobs. But the human service these days at my Chipotle is absolutely <laughs> terrible. It's almost as if they're not even trying. Um, yeah, big picture, the implications of AI continues to boggle my mind. So let's let's start with the softball question, Phil. Are you okay with the robot making your burrito? I, I, in the abstract, I have no problem with a robot making my burrito. I, I <laughs> yeah. mean, I feel like robots make so much of what we do. And and yes, I'm a little bit like the last time I went to Chipotle, they were out of rice and they were out of cheese. I don't I don't know how that happens, Bill. And I don't know if a robot can fix that. But it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem. I, I also want to say that I, I give it two years tops until you have one of these burrito making robots in your kitchen. <laughs> I would love that. Constructing burritos for you. Um, so, <laughs> so I, I mean, I, this is, so this is a great time. I mean, this is like both a, a fun topic to think about, you know, the ways in which AI is, is changing the world we're in, but it also, there's like so much to it. It's, it's sort of illustrative of like the broader changes that are going on in, in our world. And, and I think, you know, when you look at this sort of development, we can look at it sort of big picture abstract, and then we can look at sort of the specifics. And I think big picture abstract, I, I feel like this has the chance to restructure society almost in a kind of an industrial revolution kind of yeah. way, right? As, as robots and, and AI sort of takes over, you know, the industrial revolution dramatically altered the way people live. It led to urbanization. It changed, you know, people from agricultural lifestyles to these, you know, manufacturing industries. And I feel like this has the potential to really restructure society in the same way. And in the abstract, it's it is arguably a positive change because the idea would be, you know, call centers are not they're not great. I mean, it's not my idea of a of a great job. And you know, having some of the 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 idea would be some of the labor that is out there is is automated by robots and artificial intelligence and. 
that creates a more efficient system, right? So now, you know, burritos can be produced even more efficiently and more cheaply. Other th products can be made more efficiently and more cheaply. And that raises the standard of living and all of that sort of stuff. And so um, in terms of like increasing efficiency, just the way the industrial revolution like brought, you know, increased like the living standard of people around the world because products were made more easily available. The specifics, though, are that it's going to mean the loss of lots of people's jobs. Yes. And, and that's where the, the suffering comes in. And I, I think about like the, the challenge is this is back to good governance, which is we have this change that might bring greater levels of efficiency. But right now we're not really prepared for it in the way that the industrial revolution, we weren't really prepared for, but we're in a position where what's going to happen is what has been happening, which is a handful of people are going to get incredibly rich and a whole bunch of other people are going to be left behind. And without good governance to sort of ensure that the benefits of these changes accrue to everyone without those sorts of things in place, then, then it's going to be a disaster. And, and, and I think that's also, that's making this argument from kind of a domestic politics stand standpoint. Like if we look in the United States, if we have some laws, you know, we change tax policy, we do whatever, it could be something that this efficiency sort of raises, it lifts everyone's boat. Um, I'm not confident that we will do that. And also that doesn't get at sort of international differences. So, yeah. you know, what is, what's more likely to happen as well is that, you know, American co companies do really well and the Indias and the Philippines of the world pay a, a really harsh price because they lose so much um, of, of the sort of investment and labor that they currently have. I, uh, that's a lot that I just, yeah. have to, what, what, <laughs> what, what's your take on all of this no, other than burritos think... are good? Right. I think you're you're right that we're looking at a, a seismic shift here that is in some ways inevitable. Right. And so now we're just thinking about what is that shift going to look like and how is it going to transform uh, the, the the way that people work and exist, right? I mean, that's the thing. What does it mean to be a human being? We define so much of our own identity through our jobs. And that's going to change, right? Because AI is going to to change how we work. And it doesn't mean that it's going to eliminate the human being, but I think it's going to change how we are human. And you hear people talk about technolo technological changes in the past. And well, humans always adapt. There's always new jobs. But I think AI is different in the sense that it could eliminate millions and millions of jobs, right? I mean, think yeah. about all the people in India and the Philippines and elsewhere in these call centers. Um, they are, they're not, you don't get rich at those jobs, but they're a solid job, right? right? If, if you can suddenly have a bot take care of all of those, what happens? What are the political implications of a society where a huge chunk of the workforce is gone? Think about the United States with truckers. So if we go to automated cars and trucks and whatnot, all those people are out of a job. Can our political systems handle that? And I, I don't know if they can. So it would behoove us to start thinking about how do we handle this? What, what ways, to your point, how do we govern effectively so we don't have these dramatic dramatic shifts where suddenly mm -hmm. a huge chunk of the workforce is replaced and then and then our political system becomes irrational right i think part of what we're seeing in terms of the mega craziness is is pushback at globalization and alienation and diversity and all these things and so you want to try to ease into some of this so that you yeah. don't empower those most radical voices and and i'm i'm hopeful that we can start thinking through this cuz it's going to happen it is inevitable a business owner is going to look at this and say i can fire all these employees save a ton of money and have a bot do it so individually it makes sense collectively it can lead to a lot of problems so yeah have, I, I like you I'm, I'm torn 
You have ChatGPT write most of your lectures already, right? Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> I'm just up there. I don't even I don't even read them anymore. The ChatGPT, you know, it talks it talks for me. So. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that you know we're not economists, but I, the the economic argument, as as I understand it, is that you know these these innovations and trade and all of this other stuff that you know the, these changes, the sort of good and the bad, you know, kind of offset each other. And the idea would be, I mean, in the abstract again, the people who are working at Chipotle and driving trucks, if if those are both automated, those jobs are lost, but all these new jobs are created because you have to have people who, you know, program uh, and, and create, you know, the, the who, who do the sort of higher level stuff of making the robots and, and all of that. Um, and that works in the abstract, right? But the reality of getting people from that transition from, you know, working at yeah. Chipotle and driving trucks to sort of tech jobs. And, and this is the other part is where I think we haven't even thought fully about the ways. And there's a lot of people who argue that like even becoming a programmer is like an outdated thing because AI will yeah. do all of that right, as well. Right. And so, um, yeah, I mean, again, it's, it really means we have to, I think, rethink how we conceptualize work. And, and again, you know, how can you do this in a way that benefits not just a handful of people, but benefits a whole lot of people? It feels like humanity is not prepared for this. Um, it feels like the American political system in particular, which is designed to not change fast at all, right, um, right. is particularly ill-equipped for handling this this shift and this transition as as well. And, and you're, you're right. It's it will, I think, be destabilizing potentially to society. But that, you know, as a political scientist, I think about the ways like you that yeah. uh, instability, domestic economic instability leads to, you know, international military instability and yeah. all sorts of other stuff as well. And it's, it's, it's one of those issues where there is unbelievable potential. Right? I think about AI uh, dealing with healthcare. Uh, and and dealing with climate change and energy and all of that. I mean, the, it's so exciting to think about the ways in which AI can change things. And I also think about some of these jobs are not the most meaningful jobs, right? So if you could find a way of 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 getting rid of some of the worst jobs out there, that would be a good thing. But you also have to think about what do you do with those people? I think we have to bring in the conversation about universal basic income, right? I think this is inevitably yep. going to happen, especially if AI eliminates jobs. Now, as you were suggesting, it is possible that as AI hits, there are new jobs created. And a lot of people make that argument. Every time you have a new technological wave, old jobs are eliminated and new ones are created. But it doesn't mean that there's going to be in the same numbers. And it feels to me that AI could reduce that number. So if you're going to reduce that number, you got to think about, okay, we have to have some sort of universal basic income. So everybody has some way of surviving or the political system doesn't, you know, it just doesn't work. So I, I, I again, fascinating but also really it's going to be a major challenge for our for our political systems there a new a lot of new jobs will be created uh serving the ai overlords right like we'll have to, that'll have to be a part yes. of how we we think about stuff as well <laughs> The, I, the the guy, one of the sort of founders of AI was interviewed a, a week ago or so, and I saw him talk about it. And he was, he was talking about both the good and the bad. And then somebody said, well, you know, there's no way we're going to let uh, computers, you know, convince us to do all these things that are not in our interest. And he said, think about a, an AI a bot, a computer robot, whatever it is, that has read all of Shakespeare, read everything that's ever been written, every persuasive thing. They said, they're going to be so much smarter than you and much more <laughs> convincing and understand human psychology. Like, we will have no chance against the AI overlords, <laughs> Phil. We are in a bad position because, I mean, think about how dumb 
think about how dumb American politics is right now. Like, you know, Donald Trump goes out there and says, I won an election. And half the country's like, yes, you did. <laughs> I mean, these AI bots are going to be so much smarter. If we if we fall prey to Donald Trump, I think we're we are in a bad position to be pushing back against the robots. <laughs> and it all comes back to you and your uh, uh, your insatiable demand for burritos. Like if you didn't want so many burritos, there wouldn't be like staffing shortages and they wouldn't need to build robots. You So it's all your fault in the end. But how can you really blame somebody for loving burritos, Phil? I just I just don't think you can do it. So and that's probably a good point to wrap up my love of burritos. Uh, Phil, why don't you remind everybody how they can stay connected? All right. So you can find us at thepoliticslab.com. And, and again, all these articles that we mentioned um, uh, about both Jim Jordan and, and Poland and, and uh, some a uh, couple articles on just war theory and, and Gaza, um, as well as the articles that Bill mentioned on, on AI and robots. All of them are available at the website on this week's uh, episode page. And then you can also find all of our social media stuff, our email and all the other goodies there. So that's all at politicslab.com. Phil, I will see you next week. Bye, Bill. Bye, Phil.